myself To the never know I just took my purple bath Banana hope, banana boat, banana clan International shop thing Seeds from the motherland Spanning the planet with extension alarm Spanning the planet with extension alarm Some of them are back up now Some of them are crazy We just hold it up If you just roll it up If you drink a tennis you should sober up Got a hole in your sock, you better sold it up No shame in nothing, put the mow in a cup We moving strong Yeah, we walking with lady luck Never gonna dead, no stinking back Yo, I would ever try if it come chalk Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Grey Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And just toweling off after an extensive aerobic workout, I'm Jim Dwyer. Yeah, that was move your body or... Move your ass. Move your ass and your mind will follow. <laughs> I think that's a George Clinton yeah. hit. And I think he's playing uh, in the area quite soon. I've seen him a number of times. If you've never seen him, go see him once. He's just funky. Yeah. All-time funky. Weird. Of course, a lot of people uh, may be coming back from uh, a lengthy day of a friend who spent the entire weekend up at the uh, Detroit Electronic Music Festival. Oh, yeah. I look, look forward to hearing his report. Well, that's a uh, venue. Scorcher of, of a day today to yeah. be in Hart Plaza. But a good lineup. And you can certainly move your ass down there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, obviously Memorial Day uh, uh, today, uh, it's amazing. Uh, we may have set an all-time record for uh, temperature on this day. I have no idea. But uh, St. Patty's Day set an all-time record here in Michigan, so what's up with the holidays? Who knows? Uh, but, of course, Memorial Day uh, was originally called Commemoration Day, right? Or Decoration Day. Day. And it goes back to the Civil War era yeah. where the graves of... Fallen Civil War day. soldiers were decorated by uh, friends and family. And uh, obviously, it would, uh, you know, we, we uh, obviously want to honor the fallen, as they say. But I, I've, I'm an advocate, I believe, of starting another holiday. In fact, I think the perfect holiday Monday for this date would be the day after Easter every year. Just turn it into a four-day weekend. Holidays are good for the economy. Uh, it helps to uh, take time off, be with friends and family, forget about the uh, the grind at work or school. The grind at work or school, and uh, I, I think that it would be appropriate if we had a, a sort of a national peace day in which we contemplate uh, more thinking about peace and the cost of war, because I think that one of the problems with the way we're commemorating this this holiday we we remember the fallen but uh there's a lot of things that people are not remembering such as these costs yeah and it's interesting that even on today's front page of the new york times they have an article about the uh west point uh, the article is entitled uh, west point asks if a war doctrine was worth it which is uh, basically an analysis by Elizabeth Boomiller. I won't go into it too much, but it's basically the uh, questioning of the preemptive war concept introduced by George W. Bush and quoting uh, Colonel John P. Gentile. I'm just guessing that that's how he pronounces his last name rather than Gentile. 
the director of West Point's military history program and the commander of a combat uh, battalion in Baghdad in 2006, said flatly in an interview last week, certainly not worth the effort in my view, not worth the cost, the two wars. And uh, I, I heard some strange going goings on today that this was, uh, I mean, I understand the president had to uh, give speeches and uh, maybe march in a parade here and there, but I heard some strange discussion about America beginning a the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War. And I'm thinking, now wait a minute. There were some aspects of the Vietnam War that were escalating in 1962, but facts are facts. America's first casualty in Vietnam occurred in 1945. That's OSS for the record. Mm -hmm. We were certainly involved in the Indo-Chinese War that followed World War II, uh, supporting the French. Climaxing at the Dien Bien Phu battle. And even when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, I, so I'm beginning to have a, some speculative theory about this. this. This gets back to some very strange historical revisionism that's going on in America. Even when John F. Kennedy was killed, America had only lost l less than 100 men in Vietnam. So the idea that this is the start of the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War is puzzling to me. By the way, the best short history on the Vietnam War is a slim volume by George Herring entitled uh, America's War in Vietnam. I'm paraphrasing here. 1945 to 1975. So the Vietnam War has a clear end, and that's the evacuation of Saigon from yep. the American perspective. But the Indo-Chinese Wars went on for quite some time. Uh, basically, in, they were part of World War II, and we certainly know that there were uh, there was massive genocide in Cambodia following America's departure from the area. So this is... And, of course, Cambodia uh, has the dubious distinction of being the most heavily bombed country in the world. Yeah. Thanks to Richard Milhouse Nixon and his uh, henchman, Henry Kissinger, who followed the command uh, of Nixon to, uh, what was the uh, the famous line? I don't know if it's Kissinger's or Nixon's language. Uh, anything that flies on anything that moves. <clears throat> yeah, and it's amazing because uh, uh, Richard Nixon in the 1968 election had campaigned on ending the war in mm -hmm. Vietnam. What he didn't tell the American public was that he would start a secret war in Cambodia, which he did. And it took uh, the New York Times um, several months to even report the fact that this bombing was going on. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this eventually led to the uh, Kent State uh, Jackson State uh, killings, uh, war protesters protesting this uh, secret undeclared war. In and of course, ultimately led to the instability on the ground in Cambodia that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, because Prince Sihanouk, just for the historical record since we're talking about it, was involved as, as a sort of a neutral uh, advocate. He was uh, anybody that was part of the so-called non-aligned movement during the Cold War was considered pro-Soviet right. by the American State Department and by the likes of Kissinger and Nixon. So Prince Sihanouk, who was uh, actually working uh, for peace uh, throughout most of his career, was sort of overthrown uh, by the American-backed, uh, as uh, Spalding Gray jokingly puts it, in swimming to Cambodia, 
the palindrome Lon Knoll. Oh, that's right, Lon Knoll. <laughs> so, uh, disaster strikes again uh, with war, and uh, we need to remember, of course, in the 20th century that it's not only um, the fallen, the soldiers that, that die, but uh, in the 20th century, unfortunately, civilians in unbelievable numbers. Oh, indeed. I've been reading a uh, scholarly work called Ostkrieg, Hitler's War of Extermination in the East, a new scholarly work by Stephen Fritz. And uh, this is a thick volume uh, with heavy documentation from uh, German and Soviet archives, kind of stuff that uh, people don't read enough of in my book, University Press Books. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't get publicized by the media quite enough, but... It's staggering in just the beginning parts of this book. He reports that the Red Army lost 12 million soldiers, 30 times the number of Anglo-American deaths in World War II. He also notes that total German and Soviet deaths, these are military and civilian deaths in World War II, totaled 35 million. Mind-boggling. That doesn't even include all of the civilians and uh, soldiers killed in the Eastern European countries, some of them collaborated with Hitler mm -hmm. in rounding up Jews for the gas chambers that were primarily set up in Poland. But this book is uh, kind of both a combination of military history with the uh, strange racist uh, ideologies of the Nazis and how they operated. And it is... Uh, mind-boggling to read this book um, almost troubling to read the book uh, because I've been noticing lately that there's even more revisionism going on we were talking earlier about the revisionism regarding the Vietnam War World War two is now being uh, attacked FDR is, is now being accused of being pro-soviet because of Lend-Lease ignoring the fact that Lend-Lease allowed the uh, Red Army to Reattack Hitler in a war front that was 2,200 miles long. Uh, to get an idea of that, uh, Detroit to New Orleans is 1050. So imagine going there round trip. That's how big this front was. And of course, uh, m much of the uh, area with, where the fighting was, 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 was taking place were uh, in the Caucasus uh, in the oil fields and mm -hmm. that was one of the big factors in the war oil hmm sounds familiar regarding the Bush doctrine but unstated yeah indeed of course that was a uh, Japanese major reason for uh, attacking Pearl Harbor is we'd cut off their oil supply but the Lend-Lease aid that FDR gave to the Soviets um, allowed them to advance quicker in the counterattacks. And it's uh, just an amazing account of what was going on in the East, um, in the war in the East, because Americans get a D-Day perspective about mm -hmm. the European war. And, of course, needless to say, there was war going on in Southeast Asia, as we mentioned Obviously, Japan, the Philippines, etc., North Africa. They don't call it World War II for nothing. But it's uh, very troubling that we sometimes, I think, 
are are not honest enough about the costs of the war in terms of the fact that you know when they talk about the fifteen trillion dollars of quote debt that the American government has, it's uh, mo- mostly accountable by unpaid taxes for war. It's that simple. It would be uh, nice for a change if the politicians who advocate war would uh, raise the taxes in advance. Then it'd be interesting to see how many Americans support their uh, diabolical ideas about going to war because most of the wars uh, since World War II have been unnecessary, costly, and uh, avoidable. Uh, I wanted That's to mention dubious. <laughs> yeah, some of them have just been outright frauds. And if Germany made a mess of the, uh, of the world during the first half of the 20th century, I think it's fair enough to say that the United States and the Soviet Union made a mess of the world in the second half of the 20th century with many proxy wars in many countries uh, and it's not talked about enough I mean even the Afghan war the United States has been in Afghanistan since 1979 and it's fascinating just this past week we had a big diplomatic brouhaha about the doctor whose name I don't remember who has been Sentenced to 35 years in uh, jail in Pakistan for assisting the United States in the capture of bin Laden, uh, and he's been accused of treason, um, a highly debatable charge. But to me, it's a perfect justification and reason to eliminate aid to Pakistan instead of demanding that he be released have some have some cojones for once and say that's it you're cut off we're getting out finally and of course the tilt to pakistan that goes back to tricky dick that's right and henry kissinger hank don't call him henry <laughs> big hank don't call henry uh hide uh, hank either but that's actually true. yeah that was his nickname call him hank Henry called me Hank uh, Hyde. Uh, anyway, a, a letter that I uh, that I saved from several months ago, I, I think, is worth reading regarding America's global role and invitation to dialogue. Written by Stuart Gottlieb uh, in the New York Times, who's uh, portrayed as a former Senate foreign policy advisor and speechwriter, and he teaches international affairs and public policy at Columbia University. This letter that was published on the 28th of March in the New York Times then became a dialogue, Sunday dialogue that they have in the Sunday uh, week in review kind of section. I think it's an interesting letter because I think it goes to the big picture that uh, might be appropriate for Americans to contemplate more often. And I am certainly an advocate of this idea that I had on my way over to the station tonight that they should make the Monday after Easter Sunday a national holiday. Just turn it into a four-day weekend, and uh, following Resurrection Day, we can have uh, Peace Day. Might be uh, might be appropriate. But anyway, uh, Mr. Gottlieb writes Bill Keller, who's the editorial page um, main editor of the New York Times laudably and it, b- important historical figure by the way because he played a big role in the WikiLeaks uh, uh, issue uh, a couple years ago Bill Keller laudably qu- seeks to pin down the right questions uh, 
a president should ask before deciding on war. He comes up with no fewer than five caveats. In fact, America's role in the world on big issues of war and peace can often be pared down to a simpler calculation whether the American people deem foreign threats worth the risks of overseas military entanglements. America's involvement in foreign wars has typically corresponded with stark public perceptions of threat. German submarine warfare brought America into World War I. Pearl Harbor did the same in World War II. North Korea's invasion of South Korea legitimized Cold War containment. Debatable assertion, but I think you can make that argument. When threats seem diminished, Americans renew their age-old demand for limits in foreign policy. America's failed humanitarian experiment in Somalia elicited loud calls to disengage from the world in the 1990s. The 9-11 attacks renewed America's militarism in foreign affairs, but now, after a decade of enormous costs in blood and treasure and visible successes against al-Qaeda, the nation is again insisting on a more modest global role. While there may be occasional limited humanitarian action, such as Libya, it would be difficult to win public support, even for military endeavors linked to tangible security interests. As Mr. Keller points out, global dangers are swirling from Iran's nuclear program, another debatable assertion, to embolden affiliates of al-Qaeda to a rising, more assertive China. The risk is that America will default back into the 1930s or 1990s complacency, only to be forced back into the world at a time, place, and manner not of its own choosing. Food for thought, certainly. Um, the reason I read that is, of course, there's some legitimate historical analysis there, but I, and, and I think that it is interesting that America does vacillate between a concept of aggressive uh, military action abroad, but I think that the, there are all, way too many occasions in which we've been uh, asleep at the switch and propaganda and power interests in Washington, D.C. have led the charge for war under dubious circumstances. That's why American citizens need to be more vigilant regarding the costs of war and the reasons that the military-industrial complex is feeding us to justify their dubious goals. Well, it's also part and parcel with the diminished uh, concern for education and its long-term payoffs. Uh, schools no longer routinely teach geography the way it was once taught mm -hmm. back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s even. Uh, world history. Uh, yeah, you can scarcely. ask Siri, right? Isn't that the... Right, yeah, yeah, the, the <laughs> handheld device that will dialogue with you about everything it's been programmed to say. Um, you know, students uh, in high schools, uh, if they're lucky, they'll make it to some, you know, a sketchy handful of details about World War II. Um, so there are things that uh, the Americans just don't know, and they don't know that they don't know them. Yeah. Uh, because the uh, mainstream media has turned into sort of an infotainment circus. Uh, lots and lots of people go to be entertained by movies like The Avengers, which I just saw this afternoon. Not a fan of the superhero genre, but, uh, 
you know, these movies try to outdo 9-11 in special effects. And, mm-hmm. you know, I never realized that a movie where so many things crashed through other things and slid to a grinding halt across, you know, tattered shards of pavement could be so dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this constant, you know, even as entertainment uh, threat, this constant peril, this unnamed or unknown force from beyond, which could ruin everything that we possess. Which, of course, is very little because we're spending so much on military technology. So uh, these high-tech uh, fighting machines that uh, blast and blow each other apart. Yeah, the, the, the development and proliferation of drones and how they may even be used uh, domestically for law enforcement purposes. Some of the ideas coming down the pike are uh, mind-boggling to me. And in the, I think it's the most recent issue of The Nation magazine, it's uh, May 28th, so it's a recent one. There's an article by Robert Paulin and Heidi Garrett Peltier entitled Benefits of a Slimmer Pentagon, in which they actually look at some of the numbers. Uh, Of course, uh, (laughs) listeners are probably aware that the U.S. military budget is already more than double the combined levels of military spending by China, the United Kingdom, France, Russia, and Germany. That's staggering in and of itself. Uh, the fact that the military may be pushed into making cuts to the amount of about a hundred billion—excuse uh, me, uh, yeah, hundred billion a year. Uh, Panetta is saying that it's it's a trillion dollars, but that's trillion dollars is over like a ten-year projected cuts. Uh, but one of the the biggest arguments that's put up in uh, opposition to this idea is, in addition to, oh well, then we'll be vulnerable. Is but what about the jobs? We don't want to cut military spending because. It's lots of jobs, but what this article does is sort of go through and look at what kind of jobs, what kind of pay scale, and uh, considers other alternative ways to spend this. And so there's a little chart. How many jobs does $1 billion buy? That's just $1 billion, Mm -hmm. and the Pentagon's looking at a proposed $100 billion cut per year. So $1 billion buys... uh, 16,000, almost 17,000 jobs in clean energy, almost 18,000 jobs uh, in healthcare, almost 27,000 jobs in education. These are all important fields that not only, you know, lead to uh, healthier, safer, and better communities, but uh, have some sort of hopeful positivism towards the future. Uh, clean energy. We need to uh, reassess our country's uh, disastrous energy policies. Healthcare, uh, we're a laughingstock in the civilized world with regards to healthcare. And education, we've seen it cut year after year. So if we have $100 billion of spare Pentagon spending uh, to buy additional jobs, I think these and, and other areas are just begging for the investment. Sure, and, and that's another problem with, with much of the military spending uh, that uh, the uh, American Congress has permitted over um, pretty much since 1947 with the start of the uh, Truman Doctrine and the Cold War. I think that's always been a decisive year in terms of the major perceptions because it's interesting that FDR, had he lived, of course, he advocated the Bill of Rights, the Bill of uh, the GI Bill, um, not the Bill of Rights, the GI Bill, excuse me. What was the GI Bill, and why do they call the World War II, quote, America's greatest generation? Right. This, of course, is the mainstream media using this. Uh, Tom Brokaw made a yeah. little small personal fortune on that phrase. Small, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's fine, but the, bill, the GI Bill was a palpable example of a commitment to education, a commitment to pay 
and honor the troops for their exactly for their sacrifice. Yet this is portrayed amazingly uh, by revisionist historians that I've been reading recently as as uh, FDR's desire to extend the New Deal beyond World War II. It was an investment in the future of the country, and let's face it, that generation. The, from the uh, end of World War II to, let's say, the Kennedy assassination, that was America's peak. Yeah. And, of course, part of the reason that it was a peak economically for America was that the, the rest of the world was so ravaged from war, yep. thanks to the wisdom of FDR's policies, um, in which is one of his main objectives in World War II, if you read the uh, famous historian Robert Dalek's outstanding book regarding FDR's foreign policy, uh, from an academic perspective, was that he wanted to minimize American casualties. Mm -hmm. That's why the joke or the observation that even uh, a war criminal like Joseph Stalin made, in which he said England provided the time, America the money, and Russia the blood, in attributing the success of World War II. Of course, uh, Stalin was mainly interested in defeating Hitler, and reacquiring um, land possessions that Russia had lost in previous wars, either through the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 or the uh, peace treaty that occurred following World War I. Um, that's pretty much what his goals were. Mm -hmm. End of story. So uh, the GI Bill was, was actually a sensible uh, utilization of money, and of course it promoted education uh, and, and the, the university establishments. Many of the universities in America, which is actually one of America's great contributions to the globe at this point, uh, some of them actually ironically borrowed from ideas derived from Germany, the university, the whatever, mm -hmm. um, in fact, you, the University of Michigan has a fascinating um, sort of uh, progeny from German Indeed. 19th century thinking about the concept of a university. Um, the World War II veterans benefited enormously from the GI Bill, and so did the United States of America, because they obtained the skills necessary to uh, build highways, to do civil engineering, to uh, do some of the productive things that did occur uh, in America in the 1950s and early 1960s. And, of course, uh, America did contribute amazingly to the rebuilding of Western Europe through the Marshall Plan. Mm -hmm. Another, quote, essentially an FDR idea uh, that um, Marshall had served, by the way, as uh, FDR's military chief of staff. So he was in charge of the generals. He's the one that decided Eisenhower will be in charge of D-Day, not uh, Patton. <laughs> Richard Nixon's favorite movie. That's right. Oh, have you seen it? Oh, you'll love it. You'll love that one. <laughs> He's seen it four times. I think he loves the, the opening shot with the American flag. <laughs> In those jodhpurs. He <laughs> wishes he had the, the helmet. Shiny helmet. <laughs> Oh, John McCain's lost his helmet somewhere. Yeah, I wonder if Nixon would have ever contemplated a mission accomplished uh, stunt. That I doubt, uh, because he was uh, a klutz. <laughs> he, 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 would, <laughs> he would have taken the plane and... Horribly bungled somehow. In, into the Bay of Biscay, if not Key Biscayne. <laughs> Bibi. 
Gonna have to come and fish me out. You're gonna have to fish me out. I forget the name of the boat that he and Mr. Rebozo used to cruise up and down the Potomac on drinking cocktails, but it it's a zinger. <laughs> have to look that one up. Yeah. Uh, he used to get in a speedboat and drive up and down the Potomac <laughs> to cool off. And while he uh, recovered from his his lunch, which consisted of when Richard Nixon was on a diet of a dollop of cottage cheese over a pineapple ring. <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> oh, boy. Sounds like Doris Day came up with that. Yeah. Actually, I thought of Nixon the other day. They were rebroadcasting on uh, local PBS affiliates. They're doing their fundraising, so they drag out all the classic rock stuff to appeal to the uh, aging baby boomer demographic. But they rebroadcast the performance that uh, Paul McCartney gave at the White House when he received the Gershwin uh, Popular Song Award, uh-huh. I think in 2010. And uh, when he received the award and uh, began to perform a few more songs, uh, McCartney sort of tongue-in-cheek said, oh, I've been itching to play this song at the White House, but I hope the president is offended. I don't want to be the first guy to get punched by a president. And he began to sing Michelle, of course, mm. the great Beatles hit from 1965. But I realized as I was watching it that uh, I don't think uh, he would have been the first person to have been struck by a president. I think uh, Pat Nixon might uh, Oh yeah, yeah. sadly uh, have that distinction. Although if you look back at, at the history of American presidents, uh, I'm sure there's been some real roughnecks and probably lots of people have been punched by presidents. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's probably, a hothead. He probably punched you know, a few people. They yeah. didn't call him old hickory for nothing. Yeah, I think Teddy Roosevelt <laughs> might have punched a few guys, oh, too. Yeah. So. <laughs> bully, I say. Bully, bully. Well, uh, we definitely like to thank uh, Andrew for engineering and remind you that you are listening to WCBN. FM Ann Arbor. I always love news of the weird from the funny times. They always have some uh, amazing items from the United States. Uh, I don't know if you uh, can picture uh, Representative Louis Gohmert of Texas. He's a pretty much one of the dumbest people in Congress. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I don't know what committee he's in charge of, but uh, according to a Washington Post story, he... Uh, seemed serious at the Natural Resources Committee hearing when searching for yet more reasons why the United States should support oil drilling in Alaska. Caribou, he said, when they go out on a date, they invite each other to head over the pipeline. (laughs) That mating ritual, uh, Representative Gohmert concluded, is surely responsible for a tenfold increase in the local caribou population. So yeah, this guy thinks... (laughs) <laughs> thinking too much about caribou sex. Yeah. Drill, baby, drill. That's right. He thinks it's a mating ritual. No, the pipeline's in the way, uh, Louie. Got nothing to do with the mating ritual. Anyway, uh, we're out of time, matey. Uh, do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling coming up next right here on this fine station. German war is at an end. We may allow ourselves... A brief period of rejoice. After the war, new technology revolutionized the electronics industry. Television threatened to destroy radio, but another invention, the transistor, made radio more important and useful than ever. Radio lives today as a vital medium for bringing news, discussion, and music to millions of listeners all over the world. 
You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The Summer School Radio Show encourages high school students to explore the freeform format and learn how to put together a radio show. Interested students can apply for a time slot by emailing summerschool at wcbn.org. 